welcome to the Legal Merry-Go-Round, where you can learn to avoid the downs and savor the ups. Here, 40-year veteran attorney Paul Samico will entertain you and help you understand the law in areas we might all face. Brushes with the police? Oh boy. Family disputes? Oh no. An injury and accident situations? Ouch. And now, here's Paul. The fine good day to all of you, and thank you so much for your ear. Today is Wrongdoer Wednesday, this edition of the Legal Merry-Go-Round, where I want you to avoid the downs and savor the ups. I am thrilled to be able to talk to you once again. My name is Paul Samico, and I am the attorney host of this fun, fun show. On Wrongdoer Wednesdays, if you've been listening in the past, you know that I talk about criminal things, and I'm going to talk about something that I'm pretty confident most of you have never been involved in, but nonetheless, I think we'll find very interesting in what I have to say in today's show, because it is about what I know you understand on some level, white-collar crime. Yes, white-collar crime. Now, this isn't a... Uh, a discussion of the races in in America. This is a discussion uh, about crimes that involve financial things and that sort. So I'm going to get to that in just a moment. But first, I do want to give a real big thank you to my first sponsor, the LegalWritingLaunch.com business. This is a concentrated and efficient course in legal writing to help you not just write but even think clearly and concisely. Why would you be interested in a legal writing class if you're not a lawyer or a law student? Because it can help you organize your thought. It can help you say things much more clearly and much more concisely and to the point. The uh, owner of this, Bev Myers, says that after taking the class, and there are three different levels, by the way, Students should be ready to do well in most things legal, pre-law studies, law school, working at a law firm, or just understanding law on TV. So that's where you may come in if you're not a legal eagle type. The the discussion from Ms. Myers is that she takes students through advanced grammar and legal analysis. Students would be able to learn how to write legal memos, letters, motions, and briefs. Now, Bev herself has mentored law students for decades as an attorney in the California Attorney General's Office and as a law professor in the Bay Area. So for you, if you're interested, she has graciously agreed to give a 10% discount. When you go to her website, LegalWritingLaunch.com, just mention the legal merry-go-round and you'll get a 10% discount. You can also get a hold of her through her website, uh, excuse me, through her email, which is very easy, bev, B-E-V, at legalwritinglaunch.com. So again, thank you, Bev, for your sponsorship. I very much appreciate it. It helps a lot. White collar crime is the subject, as I mentioned a few moments ago today. This is, I think, again, just a fascinating kind of thing for people interested in the world of those who are you know, maybe five or 10 or 20 or 150 levels above us financially. And you'd wonder why they have to go to crime, I guess, because the answer might be just enough is never enough. So these people 
And then maybe, you know, there's a lot of people who aren't that high above us financially who do these kinds of things because they think they can get away with it. So white collar crime, what is it? It's defined by the FBI as a nonviolent crime committed for financial gain, uh, uh, getting ahead financially. According to the FBI, a key uh, um, to this is that these crimes are characterized by deceit, concealment, or violation of trust. The motivation, obviously, is to obtain or avoid losing money, property, or services, or to secure a personal or business advantage. Now, examples of white-collar crimes include things like securities fraud, embezzlement, corporate fraud, money laundering. Uh, In addition uh, to the FBI, entities that investigate white-collar crime include the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, and the National Association of Securities Dealers, the NASD, and of course, state authorities. Here are some key takeaways, and I'm going to get to some examples. I know you've heard some of these before, and depending upon how old you are, you might have heard all of them. But key takeaways, just to begin with, white-collar crime is nonviolent, again, a wrongdoing that financially enriches the perpetrators. These crimes can include misrepresentation of a corporation's finances in order to deceive regulators and others. A host of other offenses of white-collar crime type involve fraudulent investment opportunities in which potential returns are exaggerated and risks are portrayed as minimal or non-existent. Let's go back just a moment. I want to give you some history. This is very interesting. White-collar crime has been associated with the educated and the affluent ever since the term was first coined in 1949 by a sociologist by the name of Edward Edwin Sutherland, uh, who defined it as a crime committed by a person of respectability and high social status in the course of their occupation. Now, in the decades since then, uh, the range of white-collar crimes has vastly expanded as new technology and new financial products and arrangements have inspired a host of these new type of offenses. High-profile individuals convicted of white-collar crime in recent decades include Ivan Bosky, Bernard Ebers, Michael Milliken, and Bernie Madoff. And rampant new-collar crimes facilitated by the internet include so-called Nigerian scams, in which fraudulent emails request help in sending a substantial amount of money. Okay, well, most recently, and, and in the news the most, I'm sure, are what have become known as Ponzi uh, Ponzi schemes, and they all have also been referred to as pyramid schemes. These typically draw funds uh, furnished by new investors to pay the returns that were promised to prior investors caught up in the arrangement. So such schemes require the fraudsters to continuously recruit more and more victims to maintain the sham for as long as possible. The schemes typically fail when demands from existing investors outstrip new funds flowing in 
from the new recruit. Re, uh, the, I'm speaking well, aren't I, today? Flowing in from the new recruits. Okay, so let's go back to the very beginning why these were called Ponzi schemes. Depending upon your age, again, you may or may not know this, but Ponzi schemes were actually named after Charles Ponzi. And he didn't start out in high society. He was a poor immigrant in the 1920s in Boston. He worked a lot of odd jobs and was in prison twice before his notable uh, scheme even got started. What ended up being a multi-million dollar ploy began as simple mail fraud. Uh, so it started. Upon receiving a letter from Spain with an international reply coupon, Ponzi realized that he could exchange more of these for stamps uh, that he could then sell for a profit. While this turned out to be a very lucrative endeavor, Ponzi sought to increase his advantage even further by taking on investors. Okay, great. With the promise of outrageous annual returns of 50 to 100%, he convinced many to trust him with their money. Rather than actually investing, however, Ponzi pocketed the cash and paid only returns to give the illusion of growth. So like all Ponzi schemes, it began to unravel when too many investors wanted to withdraw their funds at once. Having already spent their investments, Ponzi was quickly exposed following an investigation sparked by the Boston Post. On August 12th, year 1920, Charles Ponzi was arrested and charged with 86 counts of mail fraud, owing an estimated $7 million. Okay, did you swallow that? In 1920, in $7 million. What would that be in today's world? Is there an accountant or an economist out there who can uh, raise their hand and tell everybody? $7 million he owed in 1920. He pled guilty and spent 14 years in prison. Now, to this day, variations of his scheme have been recreated countless times and continue to bear his name. The most famous, of course, is Bernie Madoff. Around half a century after Ponzi was arrested, Bernie Madoff is considered one to have pulled off the largest Ponzi scheme in the United States history. Like his predecessor, Madoff began his career working odd jobs, using $5,000 that he had earned being a lifeguard and installing sprinkler systems, along with a $50,000 loan from his in-laws, Madoff launched his investment company in 1960. Now, it's not clear when he began to establish the scheme. All the investigation that was done, they never did really figure that out. According to one report, however, it all began after what is called the Black Monday crash of 1987 in an attempt to recover losses. By the time he was arrested on December 11th of 2008, Madoff is said to have stolen 20 billion B, 20 billion in principal funds and falsified 65 billion in account statements. In the end, Madoff pleaded guilty to securities fraud, investment advisor fraud, mail fraud, wire fraud, three counts of money laundering, false statements, perjury, false filings with the Securities and Exchange Commission, and theft from an employee benefit plan. He was sentenced to 150 years in federal prison. Victims of his scheme to this day are still attempting to recover major losses. Well, if that's not 
the biggest individual, then we have perhaps the biggest corporate. Anybody out there, raise your hand. Remember Enron Corporation? Enron was a seemingly untouchable energy corporation before its fall in 2001. It had been praised for its unparalleled growth that was named America's most innovative company six years in a row. But uh, as you may have already noticed from a discussion I'm having here in this case of white-collar crime, if it's too good to be true, it usually is. Enron eventually faced a backlash from years of hiding debt and inflating profit. I should take a glass of water so I can speak properly here. Uh, Enron facing backlash, years of debt, hiding debt, inflating profit to keep stock prices high and investors happy. To pull off the scheme, Enron would immediately claim projected profits even though they hadn't actually earned the money. And if the projections were not met, Enron would transfer the loss to one of their subsidiaries and therefore avoid reporting negatively on Enron itself. By the end of the year 2000, the corporation had losses of $591 million and debt of $690 million. They cost shareholders, okay, holding on to your seat, $74 billion in the four years leading up to their bankruptcy in December of 2001. At the time, Enron's collapse was the biggest corporate bankruptcy to hit the financial market. Several executives were charged with conspiracy, insider trading, securities fraud, bank fraud, and wire fraud. Enron's accounting firm was found guilty of obstructing justice for shedding, uh, shredding Enron files, though the conviction was later overturned. wonder how that happened. I'm going to hit three more that, again, you may have remembered, you may have heard of. Then I'm going to take a little break and come back in the second half and go deep dive into what really some of these white-collar crimes are all about. WorldCom, you remember them? This was one of the biggest accounting scandals in United States history, according to CBS. Uh, The WorldCom investigation began when internal audits found improper accounting of more than $3.8 billion in expenses over five quarters. These accounting irregularities did not conform to what are referred to as generally accepted accounting principles and resulted in the resignation of senior vice president and controller David Myers, as well as layoffs of more than 17,000 WorldCom employees. Well, had you uh, gotten health insurance from HealthSouth? I hope it wasn't in the late 90s and early 2000s. HealthSouth. In 2004, auditors discovered hundreds of millions of dollars in previously unreported accounting fraud at Health at HealthSouth. The chain of hospitals and clinics was found to have $2.5 billion in fraudulent accounting entries from 1996 to 2002, $500 million in incorrect accounting and other items involved in acquisitions from 94 to 99, and $800 million to $1.6 billion in what has been referred to as aggressive accounting from 92 to March of 03. The same uh, types of things going on in others, but uh, other companies that were uh, not doing what they should be doing and with the uh, accounting process, uh, but this was so just so much bigger. Uh, 
This brought the total range of fraudulent entries to a staggering $3.8 billion, uh, as high in some estimates, uh, $4.6 billion. The founder, a guy by the name of Richard Scrushy, was indicted on 84 counts of fraud, and at least five former CFOs pled guilty to charges. Well, last but not least, I'm wondering if you have your bank accounts at Wells Fargo. One of the most recent instances of a white-collar crime involves Wells Fargo. Uh, as you know, they're a banking and financial services provider. In 2016, federal, uh, federal regulators said that Wells Fargo employees secretly created millions of unauthorized bank and credit card accounts without their customers knowing it, opening $1.5 million in fraudulent deposit accounts and submitting over half of a million credit card applications allowed employees to hit unrealistic sales targets and receive bonuses. Customers were then wrongly charged fees for accounts they didn't know existed. So Wells Fargo ended up, after the uh, the whole thing hit the roof, uh, paying over $185 million in fines and refunding $5 million to affected customers. This was the largest penalty at the time since the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was founded in 2011. Dirty dealing. God. Did you listen? Did you hear what I was saying about all of the, the, the those high numbers? I mean, you know, your head just swims with that kind of 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 cheating, doesn't it? It's just woo. All right, um, I could go on and on, but I'm going to let you take a break. I'm going to take a break. I'm going to glass grab a glass of water, and uh, we're going to come back, and I'm going to go some deep diving uh, into. Uh, what some of these uh, financial and, and white-collar crimes really mean. Don't go away. Okie dokie then. So allow me just for a moment here, please. When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, all right, I'm going to stop singing and spare all of you. There's a restaurant in Missouri. You ever been to Missouri? Called Lambert's Cafe. And it's known for literally throwing bread rolls across the room to the tables. Hey, Joe, you got a roll of bread for me? Sure, here you go. Catch. Well, one server accidentally hits a woman in the eye, and she sues him for $25,000. Yeah, she lost. That's amore. Okay, it's break time here on the merry-go-round. We want to give you value. So, do you need an attorney for an injury case or a criminal matter? or something involving family law? Mr. Samico has the answer for you. Go to our podcast website, www.thelegalmerrygoround.com. Again, that's thelegalmerrygoround.com and click on the referrals tab. Then either fill out the form or call the telephone number where you can leave a detailed message that Mr. Samico will pick up. 
and you'll get a response with a referral to an excellent attorney in your area within eight business hours. And the referral is free, no charge to you for this referral. So again, if you're looking for a lawyer that meets the highest standards, Paul is going to hook you up. And every attorney he refers to meets the highest standards, and Paul has checked them out for you. If you like what you're hearing from him during these shows, you know he's going to take care of you. So go to thelegalmerrygoround.com. And now, back to the show. All right. Anybody have a bread roll? Okay, we're back. This is the Legal Merry-Go-Round second half of today's show wrongdoer wednesdays talking about white collar crime did you know that the precise cost of white collar crime is hard to determine but a publication from the national criminal justice reference service estimates that it's between 426 billion dollars to 1.7 trillion annually that's right, every year. It's estimated to be 10 to 35 times higher than that of street crimes. As the FBI puts it, a single scam can destroy a company, devastate families by wiping out their life savings, and cost investors billions of dollars. So as promised in the first half of today's show, I told you I wanted to do a little bit of a deep dive. I'm going to go through some of the major types of white-collar crime to give a little bit more information. Corporate fraud. Some definitions of white-collar crime consider only offenses undertaken by an individual to benefit themselves, but the FBI uh, defines these crimes as including large-scale fraud perpetrated by many throughout a corporate or government institution. In fact, the agency names corporate crime as among its highest enforcement priorities. That's because it not only brings significant financial losses to investors, but has the potential to cause immeasurable damage to the U.S. economy and investor confidence. So let's go through some of these. Falsification of financial information. The majority of corporate fraud cases involve accounting schemes that are conceived to deceive investors, auditors, and analysts about the true financial condition of a corporation or business entity. Such cases typically involve manipulating financial data, the share price on the stock exchange, or other valuation measurements to make the financial performance of the business appear better than it actually is. So here's an example. Credit Suisse pleaded guilty in 2014 to helping U.S. citizens avoid paying taxes by hiding income from the IRS. The bank agreed to pay penalties ultimately of $2.6 billion. Also, in 2014, Bank of America acknowledged it sold billions in mortgage-backed securities tied to properties with inflated values. These loans, which didn't have proper collateral, were among the types of financial misdeeds that led to the financial crash of 2008. 
Bank America agreed to pay $16.65 billion in damages uh, and admitted its wrongdoing. The concept of self-dealing is, is well known among white-collar criminals. Corporate fraud encompasses cases in which one or more employees of a company act to enrich themselves at the expense of investors or other parties. So self-dealing is when a fiduciary acts in their own best interest in a transaction rather than in the best interest of the clients. Now, do you know what a fiduciary is? I'm sure you've heard the word, but a fiduciary is the highest level of trust in the business world. It means that you always put your client ahead of yourself. And anytime there's a potential conflict of interest, or anytime there's even the appearance of a conflict of interest, you must withdraw. Lawyers often are referred to as fiduciaries with respect to the confidences of their clients. So um, the concept of self-dealing, going back to the conflict of interest discussion and an illegal act, can lead to litigation, penalties, and termination of employment for those who committed. Self-dealing may take many forms, but generally it involves an individual benefiting or attempting to benefit from a transaction that's being executed on behalf of someone else. Example of this might be something called front-running. It's when a broker or other market actor enters into a trade because they have foreknowledge of a big non-publicized transaction that'll influence the price of the asset, resulting in a likely financial gain for the broker. It also occurs when a broker or analyst buys or sells shares for their account ahead of their firm's buy or sell recommendation to clients. So we've heard of that. You get a tip, you act on it if you're a broker, and this is in advance of, of you know the announcement to the world of what's going to happen. The most notorious are insider trading cases in when, which individuals act uh, on or divulge to others information that isn't yet public and is likely to affair, uh, affect the share price and other company valuations once it's known. Insider trading clearly is illegal when it involves buying or selling securities or stocks based on material non-public information, which gives that person an unfair advantage to profit. Take an example where someone knows that the uh, CEO has cancer and is going to die, and that might affect uh, the the company's uh, financials. Uh, It doesn't matter how the material non-public information was received or if the person is employed by the company. Just having knowledge of that type of thing and acting on it is illegal. For example, suppose someone learns about non-public material information from a family member and shares it with a friend. If the friend uses this insider information to profit in the stock market, then all three of the people involved could be prosecuted. Now, some other trading-related offenses include fraud in connection with mutual hedge funds, including late-day trading and other market timing schemes. You might be interested in something called money laundering. Okay, we've all heard about that. We see that on uh, TV, the criminal shows that play every evening. Money laundering is the process of taking cash earned from illicit activities such as drug trafficking and making the cash appear to be earnings from legal business activity. The money 
from the illegal activity is considered dirty and the process launders the money to make it look clean. With such cases, of course, the investigation office uh, often encompasses not only the laundering itself, but the criminal activity from which the laundered money was derived. Criminals who engage in money laundering uh, derive their proceeds in many ways, including healthcare fraud, human and narcotics trafficking, public corruption, and even terrorism. Criminals use a dizzying number and a variety of methods to launder money. Among the most common, though, use real estate, precious metals, international trade, and virtual currency within the last five, six, seven years called Bitcoin. Now, money laundering steps, there are three of them. Uh, I, I really enjoyed researching this to share this with you. And the, the, the three steps in the money laundering process, according to the FBI, placement, layering, and integration. Placement represents the initial entry of the criminal's proceeds into the financial system. Layering is the most complex step, as it often entails the international movement of funds. Layering separates the criminal's proceeds from their original source and creates a deliberately complex audit trail through a series of financial transactions. Finally, integration, as I'm sure you figured out, occurs when the criminal's proceeds are returned to the criminal from what appear to be legitimate sources. Now, not all schemes are necessarily that sophisticated. One of the most common, of course, uh, is through a legitimate cash-based business owned by the criminal organization. An example, if the criminal organization owns a restaurant, it might inflate the daily cash receipts to funnel its illegal cash through the restaurant and into the bank. Then they can distribute the funds to the owners out of the restaurant's bank account. Wasn't this fun today? How many of you, okay, raise your hand. How many of you are involved in white-collar crime? Okay, good. I didn't see any hands. Um, this, this type of situation is so above the norm. You know, there's so many things in our society that we see that go on, but there's a layer above that that we just really have no clue about because it doesn't hit us in the face or affect us personally uh, until we are a victim of it. How many, how many people do you know who were affected by Bernie Madoff? I personally know dozens. And this is the kind of thing that it's just, you never understand it until you read about it in the paper, or now you have listened to the Legal Merry-Go-Round podcast about white crime, white collar crime. I do hope that you're going to join me again uh, on Friday when I'll have another edition of the Legal Merry-Go-Round. Friday, as you know, if you've been my listener before, and I thank you for that, is Fender Bender Fridays, where I'm going to talk about injury type of situations and compensation. I hope you have a wonderful couple of days. And again, thank you so much for your ear. Thanks for listening to the Legal Merry-Go-Round. We hope you enjoyed our show. Tune in next time to get a better understanding of real life legal situations. 